right. Good morning, St. Paul's. Thank you for uh, joining us on live stream today. Uh, if you missed Keith's annou announcements, I just want to reiterate uh, two, two. So first of all, small groups. Uh, we have two more that uh, started this month, and uh, one's on Tuesday, one's on Wednesday. Uh, so if you're interested in getting connected uh, with some folks, I really encourage you to uh, email me this week, and I will be able to put you in contact with one of the group leaders. Uh, right now, the Wednesday group has more free space. Uh, so if you're available on Wednesday, that's the ideal one. If you can't do Wednesday, there's a, a group on Tuesday. And what, what happens in these groups, they get together on Zoom virtually. Uh, you get to know one another. You pray for each other. Uh, you discuss the previous Sunday's message and scripture passage. And it's just a great way to connect. And I know in this time, we have to put in a little bit more effort to connect with one another than we usually do. Normally, we can just show up here on Sunday and uh, make those connections very naturally. Um, but uh, these groups do provide an opportunity for that kind of connection. And uh, I encourage you to uh, consider taking up the offer. So email me at ryan at stpaulswire.org if you'd like me to connect you with a group leader. And then secondly, if you were at membership meeting last Sunday, you already heard me say this, but I just want to say it again in case you missed it. Um, people have been asking, when are you going to start meeting in person again? And we just want to be clear about the fact that we really want to be meeting in person again. This is not ideal. Personally, I'm getting very tired of doing things this way. Uh, but we do also want to be responsible. Uh, we recognize that when the day comes that we reopen, uh, it will never be without any risk at all, obviously. Uh, and so we expect that there will be some risk when we do reopen. But if you've been following the numbers, you do know that things in Connecticut right now, they're not great, um, especially in comparison to uh, last year, around the time this all started, um, there's, there's quite a few cases, and we just we would like to see that go down a little bit before we resume. So we want to resume, we're monitoring the situation, and we are praying that we will be able to return to in-person meetings soon. But in the meantime, we just encourage you to stay connected through the live stream, through small groups, uh, by praying for one another, you know, reaching out to one another. Um, we encourage you to make the effort. All right, so this is week 25 now in our series on the book of Revelation. We're getting very close to, to the end. I expect that two Sundays from now will be the, the conclusion. Uh, the last two chapters of the book of Revelation are this beautiful uh, vision of the kingdom of God. But before we get to that beautiful vision, we have one more heavy passage to get through. It's a short passage, it's heavy, uh, but we've got to look at it. So... Uh, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to follow along at home. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we invite your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts this morning. Uh, we pray that you would help us to attend to you and to listen to whatever it is that you want to say to us. Lord, for those of us who uh, need to receive warning from this passage, I pray that we would hear the warning. For those of us who need to receive comfort, I pray that we would receive comfort. And we invite you now to work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Revelation 20, starting in verse 11. 
Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All right, so over the last few weeks, we uh, have been hearing about this lake of fire, and different things have been thrown into it. I believe it was three weeks ago, we looked at the passage where the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, and I explained how I take that to symbolically represent the destruction of all wicked political systems. Um, all of the political systems that enforce injustice and rob people of dignity and create poverty and that sort of thing. Um, the forces of evil empire, as I've been describing them throughout this series. You know, when I imagine the beast and the false prophet falling into that lake of fire, I imagine propaganda going into that lake of fire, misinformation, uh, state-sponsored violence and, and uh, bribery and corruption and all that sort of thing being purged from God's creation, being burned up. And then last week, we saw that the devil got thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, the devil is the spiritual being who has worked to try and corrupt God's creation since the Garden of Eden, since the beginning. Uh, he is the one who is ultimately behind the beast and the false prophet, the dark spiritual uh, being who animates the wickedness in the world and uh, gives it strength. And that evil spiritual entity was purged from creation, thrown into the lake of fire. And now this week we come to the lake of fire again, and this time we're told that death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, now, Hades was a word, a Greek word, that was used to describe the realm of the dead, basically where the dead go. So when John says that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, he's basically saying that the container, uh, the, the place that holds the dead, and death itself are being eradicated. They're being destroyed. You know, right now, uh, there's an order to the way that things work, right? People are born, they live, and then they die. And there's just something fundamentally tragic about our existence because of that. That is the old order. Uh, but this is telling us that there will come a day where that old order will be destroyed. Death will be destroyed. Uh, this is the fulfillment of a beautiful verse in 1 Corinthians, which says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Okay, this is describing the ful fulfillment of that. Now, as a side note, I just want to say... The fact that death is thrown into the lake of fire is evidence of the refrain that you hear from me almost every week in this series, which is, Revelation is a highly symbolic book, right? Because if you try to take this very literally, it doesn't make any sense, right? Death is not a person. Death is not something that you can hold in your hand or torture or throw into a lake of fire, right? Death is a, is a concept. It's a name that we give to the order of things, right? It's kind of like saying that gravity was thrown into the lake of fire or entropy was thrown into the lake of fire. 
If you take it really, really literally, it doesn't make sense. But if you see it as symbolically representing something, then it does make sense. It represents the fact that death is being purged from creation. Okay? The old order is being uh, changed and renewed into something better. Now, so far, I think that most of us would be able to look at this list of all the things that have gone into the lake of fire and go, yeah, I'm happy about that. <laughs> Evil political systems, the devil, death itself. Yeah, let's get rid of that stuff. Amen to that, right? That's all good news. But this passage described one other thing going into the lake of fire, and it's a lot harder for us to hear. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The second death. That's scary, isn't it? A death after death. The first death gets destroyed, but some people don't get to enjoy this new deathless world uh, that God has created, that he's renewed. They're cut off from it. They're purged from it. It's incredibly sad. So there's good news in this passage, but there's also bad news. The good news is creation is getting fixed. The bad news is in order for it to be fixed, some people aren't going to be able to be there. Now, of course, that leads to questions, right? Okay, who gets to be in the renewed kingdom? Who doesn't? Why? Well, I think that when people read this passage and try to answer that question, they tend to make one of two mistakes. And the first mistake is more often made by people who are not Christians, and the second mistake is more often made by people who are Christians. And I'd like us to take a look at, at both of these. Let's start with a non-Christian mistake. Christians can make this mistake too, but I think it's more common with people who are not Christians. The first mistake is to answer the question by saying, the people who get to be part of the renewed creation are the people who manage to be good enough for it. The people who get to be part of the renewed creation are the people who manage to be good enough for it. And I can understand why somebody would think that. I mean, verse 13 says pretty clearly that um, each person was judged according to what he had done. Seems clear enough, right? If you're not good enough, you can't be part of the renewed creation. If you are good enough, then you can be. But, okay, let's think about that for a moment. Could any of us really be good enough for that? I remember years ago, I was in this Bible study with several other guys, and one of the guys in, in the group had grown very cynical about church and, and even about the faith, and he, uh, he was complaining about all of these negative church experiences he had had and how messed up these churches were, and a lot of his complaints were, were very valid. But one of the other guys in the group said something that I thought was very wise. He said, well, you know what they say, there's no such thing as a perfect church, and if you find one, you better not go to it because you're going to mess it up. That's true, isn't it? If any one of us was given perfection, it wouldn't take long for us to destabilize that perfection, to mess it up. I knew a guy who uh, worked 
in a factory that made microchips. And once he described to me the whole process of how these chips get made, and something that he really emphasized is that all these uh, incredible uh, precautions are taken in order to prevent any dust or dirt from getting near the chips when they're being produced. Because just the slightest bit of dust or dirt can ruin the whole thing. If there's a perfect system, all it takes is a little bit of dust, a little bit of dirt, to mess it up. The Jews had this concept, they, they still have this concept, uh, of shalom. And shalom literally translates as peace, but it means something a little bit more than what we think of when we think of peace. For something to be in shalom, a state of shalom, is for everything to be in perfect balance. Um, everyone not taking too much and not having too little. Everyone having a nice balance of work and play and rest. That's shalom. And the renewed kingdom of God, the new heaven and new earth, is a state of perfect shalom. Everything in perfect balance. But you can imagine how if you had a state like that, how just a little bit of greed, just a little bit of racism, just a little bit of violence could destabilize the whole thing, could throw it off kilter. It, it would be like dust in the microchip. Could any of us really be good enough to walk into a state of perfection and not mess it up? In our own strength, could any of us really be good enough not to mess up perfection? My answer is no, and I doubt your answer is yes. But if you're leaning in that direction at all, what I would encourage you to do is to really put yourself in the passage that we just read. Let's, let's look at it again. Um, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Okay, so here you are before the throne of God, before the throne of the creator, the holy one. And you're there with everyone who's ever lived. Uh, John says great and small, which means everybody. And I think the reason he emphasizes that is because in this life, there are people who are regarded as great, uh, right? In the sense that they have power and privilege. They have enough money to hire a lawyer to get them off the hook, right? But in this situation, the playing field is leveled, right? Everybody's there. Everybody has to face uh, the throne of God. There's no hiding here. So imagine yourself. You're in this situation, right? And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Okay, so these books represent accounts of our lives. Now, the book of life, that's a separate thing. We're going to talk about that. But the books are these records of what we've done. Now, sometimes I think about how so much of my life I don't remember. I've been a journaler for a lot of my life. I can go back and look at some of my journals and, and read what I did on certain days and be like, I have no memory of that at all. Okay. Well, 
there are records of our lives, even if we don't remember them. And we will have to give an account for everything that we have, we have done. You know, every thought, every action, every careless word. Now, how would you feel if the book of your life was exposed to everyone? We're all standing before the throne, and everyone is able to see who you are in your totality, right? Every, every word, every thought, every deed, uh, everything that you said behind somebody's back is now presented to their face. What would that be like? What if every one of your secrets came to light? If all of it was exposed, okay, both the stuff that you remember and the stuff that you don't even remember, all of it, do you really think you could stay confidently? I can go march into that perfect shalom and not mess it up. I definitely will not be like dust in the microchip. I'm going to go to that perfect church and it'll be lucky to have me. <laughs> of course not, right? If entrance into the kingdom of God is dependent on our ability to be good enough for it, we all fall short. We all fall short. And this is why, you might have noticed this, the passage never says that anyone avoids the lake of fire because of how great their book is. Right? It never says that. It says the people who avoid the lake of death, the, the, um, the lake of fire, are the people whose names are written in the book of life. Those are the people who avoid it. So let's talk about the book of life. It's different from the books. What's the book of life? Well, the book of life is a list of all the citizens of heaven. And Revelation has already told us who the owner of the book of life is. It's been called the Lamb's book of life. The book of life belonging to the Lamb. And of course the Lamb is Jesus Christ. The, the book of life belongs to Jesus. Which means Jesus is the one who ultimately has the authority over who is written in it. Okay, He has the the authority to put someone in the book of life or to blot their name out. He's ultimately the one in charge of that. And he has that authority, Revelation says, because he is the lamb who was slain. In other words, he has that authority because he has purchased our redemption through his suffering and death on the cross. We could not earn entrance into the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus has done what is necessary to earn that entrance on our behalf. He has the authority over the book of life because he is the lamb who was slain. He paid the price. Can we be good enough to earn our place in the renewed creation? No. You know, if we could, then Jesus going to the cross would have been pointless. But it wasn't pointless because we can't. We can't be good enough. Anyone who is in the kingdom of God will be there ultimately because of what Jesus has done. Because we'd all be like dust in the microchip. Now you might ask, well, okay, if Jesus has the authority over who's in the renewed kingdom and who's not, well, who does he put on the list? And who does he leave off? What, what's the deal? How does that work? Well, let me say two things about that. 
First, I take great comfort and find great hope in the fact that Jesus is ultimately the one who has authority over the book of life. Because if you know anything about Jesus, you know that his grace is unsurpassed. Okay, Jesus, as he was dying on the cross, as he was being tortured, he prayed for the people who were torturing him, and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the one who's in charge of the book of life. That's incredibly graceful. That's astounding mercy. Right? Jesus said, I did not come into the world to condemn it, but to save it. The one who said that is the one who has control over the book of life. So the fact that Jesus ultimately has control over the book of life, that keeps me, it holds me back from making bold claims about who's not going to be in the kingdom. And it makes me very hopeful that there may be a lot more people in the kingdom than a lot of people think. Jesus is sovereign over who is in the kingdom. And he's gracious. He's far more interested in redemption than condemnation. But, this leads me to the second thing I want to say. The Bible tells us that if we want to have confidence that we're going to be part of God's kingdom, if we want to have confidence that our names are written in the book of life, there is only one way to have that confidence. Only one way. And it is through putting our faith in Jesus. And what that means is that we take our trust, our hope, our allegiance, and we give it to Jesus. We give it to him. We put our faith in Jesus when we say something to him like, Lord, I know I need your grace. I know that I am not good enough to deserve heaven. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'd be like dust in the microchip of heaven. And so I'm putting my trust not in myself, but in your grace, in your mercy. I'm putting my trust in your sacrifice on the cross to save me rather than in my own efforts. I'm trusting in your power to transform me and make me fit for heaven. Because I can't do it. If you have never prayed a prayer like that, I encourage you to do it. Don't delay. Make today be the day that you pray that prayer. If you want to have confidence that you're in the book of life, that's where that confidence starts. That's where it begins with a prayer like that. All right, so I said that there are two mistaken ideas that people often have when answering this question. Who's in the kingdom? Who's in the book of life? The first one, common mistake by people who are not Christians. Second one, common mistake by people who are. So the second mistake is to say the people who get to be part of the renewed creation are the people who said they believe the right things. The people who get to be part of the renewed creation are the people who said they believed the right things. So those of us who are Christians, we're likely to recognize that we can't save ourselves. We're likely to recognize that we are dependent on God's grace through Jesus. And we're right to think that. 
But if we're not careful, we can start to think that what distinguishes someone in the book of life from someone who goes to the lake of fire is something incredibly shallow. Basically, do you say you believe the right things? Are you in the right tribe? Are you in the right club? Can you sign on the dotted line on this statement of propositions that we all agree are true? If that's the way that you tend to think, I want to challenge you with some words from Jesus. Uh, Turn to Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. Now, I think it's clear in this passage here that Jesus is talking about the same event as the passage we've been reading about in Revelation today. Same thing. So, Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. So, there's the throne that we saw in Revelation, right? All the nations will be gathered before him. Nobody is left out, right? Great and small. Everybody's there. And he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will, will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do, For one of these least of these you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Or to put it in terms of the passage we've been looking at, uh, they will go away to the lake of fire or to the renewed creation. So let's be honest about this passage. Jesus is saying something about what separates those who are in the kingdom and those who are not, right? Something about those who are in the book of life and those who are not. And the thing that he chooses to emphasize is not, did you believe all the right things? Uh, It's not, did you pray that prayer at church camp when you were in junior high? No, what he chooses to emphasize is the quality of mercy. Concern for those in need. Caring for those in need. 
And if that messes with your theology a lot, I, I would just say, take it up with Jesus. Don't, you know, I'm just telling you what he said, right? True faith is not just about assenting to certain ideas. It's not just about having membership in the right club. That is a deeply shallow, false notion of what faith is. James chapter 2 says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? You believe there is one God, good. But even the demons believe that. You know, demons recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. If you've read the Gospels, you know that. Sometimes when Jesus is casting them out, they... they Say, you're the Holy One of God. They recognize who he is, right? But they're not in the book of life. They don't have faith in any meaningful sense. To have faith in Jesus is something more than just saying that we believe the right things. True faith makes people people of mercy, people of love. If I say I have faith in my doctor, but every time my doctor writes me a prescription... I throw it in the trash? Do I really have faith in my doctor? I mean, Jesus writes us a prescription. Be merciful. Care for those in need. Love your neighbor as yourself. Pray for your enemies. If we just throw out the prescription, do we really have faith in Jesus? There's a tension that we have to live with. Scripture often presents us with paradoxes. Things that we have to hold in tension. And, and the tension here is we are saved by the love and grace of God. Not by our, our deeds. We are saved by the love and grace of God given through Jesus Christ. But unmerciful, unloving people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you know, theologians talk about how do we reconcile these two things. But I don't want to jump to try and reconcile them this morning. I just want us to sit in that tension. To live in that tension. Jesus seems to be okay with us living in that, in that tension. Now, that said, okay, I want to be clear about something. I believe that if you have been an unmerciful, unloving scoundrel for years of your life, let's say you're 90 years old, and today you are feeling this weight of conviction, the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart, you feel great remorse and regret, and you want to throw yourself on the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, I believe you can be forgiven. And I have reasons in Scripture to believe that. But, if you invite Jesus in, whether you are nine years old or ninety, and it doesn't make you a, a more merciful person. It doesn't make you a more loving person. You don't have true faith. If we don't care about the least of these, something is wrong. True faith is not just tribal affiliation. It is not just assent to a statement of faith. It is an attitude of the heart. Right? An attitude of the heart that trusts in Jesus and that is filled with mercy. You know, I was thinking, well, one possible way to try and alleviate the tension a little is to say something like this. The crux of the matter is, how do you respond to Jesus? 
That's what it all comes down to. How do you respond to Jesus? Jesus invites us to put our trust in him, right? To believe in him for the forgiveness of our sins, to believe that he is from God and that he is the Lord. You can't be in the kingdom of God if you're not willing to recognize who the king is, right? That's just not going to work. So Jesus invites us to recognize him as king, to accept him and trust in him as Lord, right? And how we respond to that invitation is critical. It is so important. But that is not the only form of responding to Jesus. Okay, that, that's, that's key. That's critical. But Jesus also says in Matthew 25 that how we respond to those in need is also a way of how we respond to him. Right? He says that when you, when you have no compassion and no mercy, you're not just not having compassion and mercy for these people. You're not having compassion and mercy for me. What you do to the least of these, you do to me. How we respond to Jesus is critical. It affects whether we're in the book of life, whether we are a part of the new creation or part of the lake of fire, right? Whether we're a sheep or a goat. So if you've never said yes to Jesus' invitation to trust and follow him, don't, don't delay. Say yes. Invite the Holy Spirit to take charge of your life. And if you do that, he will hear you and he will lead you away from the lake of fire. And I believe that if you do that sincerely, he will begin to fulfill, fill your heart with mercy, right? And if you say you follow him, but you have little mercy or compassion in your heart, remember one of the ways that you respond to Jesus is how you respond to others. Let's pray. Lord, I pray again, as I did at the start of this message, that if any of us uh, need to be comforted by this passage, that we would be comforted, and that if any of us need to be warned, we would be warned. Lord, we pray that we would be people of true faith. Lord, people who recognize our need for your grace. And Father, we, we, are, we want to trust in you uh, for our salvation, Lord. We want to trust that what you did on the cross is sufficient to save us, Lord. That's where we want to place our hope. But Lord, uh, we don't want to have a faith that is shallow. We don't want to have a faith that doesn't inspire action, Lord. Lord, we recognize that how we respond to those in need, how we respond to uh, the people around us, is a reflection of how we respond to you. Lord, help us to live in that tension, Lord, to trust you and to live out our faith uh, in, in ways that bless others, and that give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.